first reading this morning is taken from Luke 9, 28 to 36, which is found on page 1026 in your pew Bibles. About eight days after Jesus said this, he took Peter, John, and James with him and went up onto a mountain to pray. As he was praying, the appearance of his face changed and his clothes became as bright as a flash of lightning. Two men, Moses and Elijah, appeared in glorious splendor, talking with Jesus. They spoke about his departure, which he was about to bring to fulfillment at Jerusalem. Peter and his companions were very sleepy, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men standing with him. As the men were leaving Jesus, Peter said to him, Master, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not know what he was saying. While he was speaking, a cloud appeared and covered them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. A voice came from the cloud, saying, This is my son, whom I have chosen. Listen to him. When the voice had spoken, they found that Jesus was alone. The disciples kept this to themselves and did not tell anyone at that time what they had seen. And the second reading is taken from Matthew 16, 13 to 20, found on page 972 of your pew Bibles. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, some say John the Baptist, Others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. But what about you? Who do you say that I am? Peter, Simon Peter answered, You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he ordered his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. This is the word of the Lord. Throughout the fall, we're exploring the Apostles' Creed together as a church. We're learning or relearning or reconsidering the fundamentals of our faith together. And as you journey with us through this series, if you want to go deeper, there's a book we have two copies of in the library. 
called the Apostles' Creed by Ben Myers. And you are welcome to borrow that and read it. It's something we've read as we prepared for this series as well. So that's a quick note for you to follow along with us. Last week, um, we started this series and we talked about the first line of this creed. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. And we considered the gravity of a statement like I believe. We considered the goodness of an almighty father who provides for our needs. And we talked about our relationship with the earth if God created it as well. This week, we turn to that second line of the creed. I believe in Jesus Christ, God's only son, our Lord. I wonder how do those words make you feel when you hear them? I believe in Jesus Christ, God's only son, our Lord. Perhaps you've been in the church for a while and they just roll off your tongue naturally. Maybe they don't provoke any particular emotional reaction. Maybe you're new to following Jesus and those words, they fill you with joy. Or maybe they fill you with surprise because you hear them coming from lips that you never imagined were capable of forming words like that before. Perhaps you're elsewhere on your spiritual journey and that phrase, it just raises questions for you. That phrase is a matter of curiosity, maybe even of some concern. And you know that you're not prepared to say it yourself. However it is that you might be feeling about this phrase, the reality I think for most of us in this room gathering here in Toronto and Canada is that we almost certainly do not fear saying those words. We have no cause to muster up our courage quickly getting through the first line of the creed as we approach this second line. But the reality in the ancient world, in the time and the place where this creed was first said, was that first line, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, that was unlikely to ruffle too many feathers. It had some quirks in it, no doubt, but they weren't insurmountable. It was the second line. Well, the second line was problematic. It was essentially a political credo. This line was going to put you at odds with your neighbors and their gods. It was going to make you a traitor to the emperor. It was going to risk your livelihood and perhaps even your very life. In today's scripture reading, we hear God's voice proclaim this very line. Jesus is his son, his chosen one, the Christ. We should listen to him, our Lord. And it's difficult, perhaps, for us to understand how these disciples could hear what they'd heard, seen what they saw, could know that they'd been following the very son of God, and then keep it to themselves. Then we read Peter make the disciples' first profession of faith that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of the living God, and Jesus orders his disciples not to tell anybody. These situations are difficult to understand unless, of course, the truths with which they carry in them are dangerous truths. Unless these realities were not only dangerous as, Christian, as the Christian church began to blossom and grow, but they were also dangerous at the very start of this thing. You see, if Jesus really is the Messiah, then the religious order of his day would have to change. The Pharisees and the Sadducees, they would have to quit all their bickering 
and they'd have to submit to this Messiah's leadership. They'd have to trust his reconciling action. That wasn't likely to happen. They'd invested their whole life in disagreeing with each other. And if Jesus is the Messiah, then he's also the king that's meant to sit on David's throne. And there's already a king, Herod, the puppet king of Caesar ruling over Israel. And Herod would not be glad for this new challenge to his power. And if Jesus, this craftsman from Nazareth, this peasant Israelite, if this man really is God's son, then it stands to reason that Caesar in his palace in Rome is not. And the empire has been propagated and established on a lie. You see, at every layer of power, in every sphere of life, there were people keenly interested in ensuring that Jesus was not regarded as the promised savior of people, was not acknowledged as the only son of God, was not followed as the Lord of all. It didn't serve the religious elite's purposes. It didn't serve the comfortable lifestyle of the rich and the well-to-do. It didn't serve the political aspirations and the global vision of Rome or its leadership. To say that Jesus Christ is Lord was sure to bring plenty of negative attention your way. This was a dangerous creed with far-reaching social and political implications. So too, I believe that at every layer of power and influence, and in every sphere of your life and of our life together, there are still people keenly interested in ensuring that Jesus is not Lord. While our leaders may no longer claim the divine right to rule, they may no longer name themselves as sons of heaven as rulers throughout our history have often done, the reality remains that the lordship of Jesus as the chosen one of God, the son of the father, threatens the comfort, the power, and the aspirations of the very people who rule over us in our world today. We may not feel that same cause to fear in making this proclamation any longer. But what if that's not because we have no reason to fear? What if that's actually because we no longer understand the implications and the severity of the statement that we're making? You see, our world is fine if Jesus is Lord, as long as it means that the rich can still step on the backs of the poor. It's all right for Jesus to be Lord if governments can still value some people more highly than others. It's okay that Jesus is Lord as long as it has no impact on the day-to-day -day realities of our city streets, our businesses, and our households. But this is a sad and pitiful lordship, a lordship that is not worth proclaiming, a lordship that doesn't matter to us and doesn't matter to our world. Jesus is not this quaint figurehead of a Lord. Jesus is not content to have his face stamped on our money. Rather, since Jesus is Lord, things have to change. Because Jesus' lordship is over all things, things in heaven and things on earth. Jesus being the Christ means that Jesus is responsible for saving the world from systems, structures, people, and places that oppress and belittle and mar God's creation, hurt God's beloved, undermine God's rule of justice and love. To say that Jesus is Lord 
is not only to say that Caesar is not Lord, that our prime minister is not Lord, that our teachers at school and our managers at work are not Lord. But to say that Jesus is Lord is to say that Jesus' way is higher and better than all other ways. And it is the way in which we have aligned ourselves, not only in word, but in action, that we have dedicated ourselves to the Lordship of Christ, that we not only put our faith in Jesus, but we pledge to him our faithfulness as well. Let me say that again. Not only do we put our faith in Jesus, but we pledge to him our faithfulness as well. This was the very crux of the the political problem with this creed in the ancient world. This first and simplest proclamation from Christians, even before the Apostles' Creed, was Jesus is Lord. Before all the theological nuts and bolts were figured out, there was this simple creed. It appears in the New Testament. In Romans, Paul writes, If you declare with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. This profession, Jesus is Lord, went beyond faith in Jesus as a God. The Romans could handle another God. They had dozens of them. Rather, this proclamation meant a life of committed service exclusively to that Lord. To say, I believe was to say, I commit. And to say, I commit, was to the exclusion of all other commitments, even those that were expected of citizens in Roman society. Christians who were so pledged to Christ could not also be pledged to Caesar, and therefore could not join the Roman legion. Christians so bound to Christ could not make ritual sacrifices to the gods of the empire, for the well-being of the empire, as was their civic duty. Christians who believed that Jesus is Lord had to act in every area of their life as if Jesus' lordship extended beyond the edge of the communion table, lasted longer than 12.30 on a Sunday afternoon. They had to believe that it continued everywhere they went, whatever they did, with whomever they interacted. And so with such a weighty reality behind even such a simple statement, it was not said lightly. It was not said only because a person found themselves intellectually compelled by the tenets of Christianity. It was not said only because a person was born into a Christian household, why would you run such a risk? It was only said if a person was prepared for the possible consequences of this statement and nevertheless believed that living under the lordship of Christ, the only son of God, was better than living under any other lord, better than adhering to any other kingdom, even if it meant that that life was shorter or less comfortable than it otherwise might have been. This is why the Apostle Paul says that declaring with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believing in your heart that God raised him from the dead is so significant. Because in this context, to say that Jesus is Lord is to act like Jesus is Lord. And if you truly believe that God raised Jesus from the dead, then you have no reason to fear even death itself as a consequence for those actions because you know that God will raise you from the dead as well. 
What we need to realize, what this declaration has at its heart, what the Apostles' Creed is pushing us toward is the truth that if Jesus is Lord, nothing can be the same. If Jesus is Lord, then there are implications on our careers, on our studies, on all our leisures. There are also implications for our families, for our economies, for our politics. To say that Jesus is Lord and to live out our allegiance to Jesus, who is the living and enthroned King, well, that naturally prevents us from behaving as if the dollar is Lord or democracy and the will of the people is Lord, or the expectations that our families have on us might be Lord, or anything else in all creation is Lord. To enact our belief that Jesus is Lord is to dethrone every other power which would claim lordship over us and lordship over this world. And is to put ourselves at odds with every other kingdom that any other person is building, no matter how good their intentions may seem. Because we believe that the true and rightful king is Jesus, the only son of God, and to be faithful to him is truly our highest calling. So then we have to also believe what Jesus affirms to Peter when Peter makes this first profession of faith, that it is on the very bedrock of this confession that Jesus will build his church. As each of us joins our voice with the church throughout the generations and around the world in saying that Jesus is the Christ, the only Son of God, our Lord, and as we give our faithfulness to the Lord Jesus, the truth and the goodness of his kingdom is revealed not only in our words but by our deeds as well. Jesus Christ is Lord and he builds his kingdom as we choose to use the excesses of our lives, not to increase our comfort, but to provide for the poor who are among us. Jesus Christ is Lord, and his rule expands as we vote not for the party that promises the most good for us, but as we seek a political reality which will lift up the broken, and which we will gladly humble ourselves within for that cause seeking the good even of those without voice and without vote. Jesus Christ is Lord and he is reconciling the world to himself as we question and raise our voices up against anything which tells us that this world as it is, is okay, that it's as good as it can be, that it's something we should just make the most of for ourselves. Through actions of justice and mercy, through our commitment to the love of God and the peace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God himself is building his church in the world. And no other pretender to the title of Lord, no billionaire, no politician, no army or nation or any other thing, not even the gates of hell can prevail against it. To say that Jesus is Lord is to believe that Jesus' lordship is supreme, that his kingdom is insurmountable, his goodness and grace worth any call to follow, any cost of obedience, any challenge by the world which in vain tries to usurp him and reject him. To say that Jesus is Lord is to proclaim that his rule and his reign is here and to observe it in our lives 
to long to see its fullness in the world. It is to commit ourselves to serving the Lord Jesus in whatever we do, wherever we go, to renounce and denounce every other thing which claims to save, which seeks to be Lord, and to trust that in your good works, in your good works of obedience and trust that in those things, in proclaiming Jesus' lordship in your life, God's good purposes will be fulfilled, all for his kingdom's sake. Amen. Would you pray with me? Jesus, you are Lord. <laughs> Frankly, we don't know what that means. We, we can't imagine what it would cost. We can't imagine the implications for our life and our world. But we believe that it's good. We believe that it's worthwhile. We believe that your Lordship is true and real even now. And so we pray that you would send your Holy Spirit to lead us and to guide us, to teach us to follow in your ways, to consider the cost and to gladly choose to follow you. That as we proclaim with our mouths that you are the Christ, the Son of God, our Lord, that others would see the truth of that proclamation lived in our lives, together as a church and individually in every way. Amen.